Talk to my friend Drew Allen. And I'll tell you what, he's a tough guy. A millennial conservative. I've, I've become a big fan of One your writing. Of the great young thinkers of our time. Appreciate his opinion. Conservative Drew Allen. As diehard conservative to this guy for wisdom. As a matter of fact, my July 4th weekend, I hope you all did as well. But of course, the news never stops. And yeah, I couldn't help. I kept paying attention to what was going on. And I got to tell you, I wasn't really surprised by most of what I read over this weekend. But I was chomping at the bit to get back behind this microphone to address these issues. But of course, nothing is a surprise on July 4th. Because July 4th, just as sure as the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, you can be sure that the Democrat Party and the leftists will come out and attack America. They will come out and use the July 4th Independence Day holiday, which is supposed to be a unifying celebration that marks, of course, our independence, the birth of this greatest nation in the history of the world, well, just like the, well, like a werewolf under a full moon, the Democrat Party and the leftists can't help but show their true colors as well. And that's exactly what happened. While you were probably celebrating or barbecuing or grilling with your friends and family, well, the left was bashing America. I don't know if you heard about Maxine Waters. She, of course, well, no surprise here. She, um, you know what? I got to say something, folks. These uh, quote-unquote African-Americans who are in the Democrat Party, who repeatedly attack America as systemically racist and bash it and accuse this country of having racism in its DNA, of you and I being racist, and, and talking about how there's no opportunity, how, you know, the whites are keeping the man down, and so on and so forth. Well, when they're African-Americans saying this, it's absolutely disgraceful. I mean, Maxine Waters, of course, lives in a mansion. She has a mansion in L.A. She's worth millions of dollars. She spent her entire career in life serving. I don't know how many years she's been in Congress, folks. I mean, she's got to be near 80 years old at least, but she's been there for I don't know how many terms. She's a lifer, though. And, of course, this is uh, disgraceful in terms of what Congress and those public servants are supposed to represent in this country, those, those positions were never intended to make someone obscenely wealthy, rich, powerful. You know, the way the founders saw it, you were supposed to work in the private sector, become a successful individual who understood things, was enlightened, and then it was a sacrifice to go and serve in Congress. It was a sacrifice just like it would be to serve in the military, okay? You went to Congress to bring all that wealth of experience, knowledge, and success to the benefit of the country. But of course, Maxine Waters, who's made a fortune being in Congress, 
off of the taxpayer and these side deals, these corrupt deals where she's paid for who knows what, well, here she is attacking the very country who has put an African-American woman in Congress for her entire career. But, but what does she have to say? I believe it was a tweet she came out with, folks. She says, um, the Declaration of Independence says all men are created equal. Equal to what? What men? Only white men? Well, you know, she would say, she kind of barks and yells. That's what she does. The Declaration of Independence says all men are created equal. Equal to what? What men? Only white men? That's kind of probably what, how she said it in her head. As she tweeted on Sunday, bringing race into the mix and stirring division and animosity. Isn't it something that they wrote this in 1776 when African Americans were enslaved? They weren't thinking about us then, but we're thinking about us now. She is such an angry, a violent individual. It's remarkable. Um, what else, if I'm missing anything here? Well, of course, she also used the occasion on July 4th as she bashes America to talk about things that have nothing to do with racism today. In her tweet, uh, 17 states have enacted voter suppression laws. And we'll get to that in a minute because uh, there's another African-American in Congress who has done a 180 on his position. You know, he previously said that, um, you know, uh, asking for voter IDs or mandating them was an act of voter suppression. But now, because it's polling unpopularly, he's done a 180 and says he's always been for voter IDs. But anyway, Maxine Waters didn't get the memo. She doesn't care what's popular or not. She's going to go keep on uh, going like she is. Um, she mentions George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Michael Brown, Sandra Bland, Tamir Rice. Need I say more, she asks. I mean, this is absolutely ridiculous. I actually, I do want to address this short, real quick, folks, because uh, this is something that needs to be addressed. They continue to act as if um, this nation and the Constitution were documents that are inherently racist, that, that D, that's in the DNA of this country. But the Constitution was no such thing. Now, I want to just briefly touch upon Frederick Douglass. Now, Frederick Douglass uh, lived in the period of the Civil War. He was an abolitionist slave. So this individual actually had been a slave. He actually knew what it was like to live under slavery and then as a free man. And he was a great advocate of what? Of the Constitution. He actually went to Glasgow, Scotland in 1860. It was an anti-slavery society. And um, he defended the Constitution against those who would say that what the claims are making now, that, that you know, con the Constitution actually um, protects slavery, that slavery is somehow uh, a part of our DNA back then. But that was not true. And of course, it makes no difference to the left that their claims that the Constitution is a racist document that accepted, allowed, permitted, uh, espoused slavery is not true. Because they're the party of lies and liars, as we've established time and time again on this program. But, you know, you hear time and time again, for example, the three-fifths compromise, right? The left always says, oh, you know, the um, you know, white Americans counted blacks as three-fifths of a person because they thought that blacks uh, were less than, than human, less than a person. That their weight was three-fifths of a white man. But that's not even why the three-fifths compromise came about. Now, I'm going to quote Frederick, Frederick Douglass because, look... 
He was closer in proximity and experience, of course, to slavery than I am, or Maxine Waters was, so what did he say even about the Three-Fifths Compromise? He said that the Compromise, the Three-Fifths Compromise, is a downright disability laid upon the slaveholding states. See, it was, it was to weaken the slaveholding states, okay? Because he said it was, it was a disability, it was one which deprives those states of two-fifths of their natural basis of representation. Because a black man in a free state is worth just two-fifths more than a black man in a slave state as a basis of political power under the Constitution. Therefore, he says, instead of encouraging slavery, the Constitution encourages freedom by giving an increase of two-fifths of political power to free over slave states. So much for the three-fifths clause, taking it as it is worst, it still leans to freedom, not slavery. Okay? So the three-fifths compromise empowered the free states to have greater voting power than the slave states. That's what it was about, and that's what Frederick Douglass said. And I want to just read a couple more pull quotes here from his long speech in Glasgow, all right, because he defended the Constitution, as I said. So they hold the Constitution to be a slave-holding instrument, he says, of his opponents. And they denounce all who vote or hold office, no matter how faithfully such persons labor to promote the abolition of slavery, just like today. It doesn't matter if you say you're not racist. It doesn't matter if you're a conservative Republican and you are determined to, for example, create a, a voucher system throughout this country that will allow inner-city children to get out of the quote-unquote hood where their educational system does imprison them, where they come out of these schools and they're illiterate or they drop out and they just get into trouble. Well, we want that. But it doesn't matter that we want that because we're all racist no matter what, no matter what we do, just because of the founding of this nation. But he says, you know, a chart is one thing. The course of the vessel is another. The Constitution may be right. The government is wrong. If the government has been governed by mean, sordid, and wicked passions, it does not follow that the Constitution is mean, sordid, and wicked. Do you understand? You know, the Constitution was not built for amoral men. It was not built um, uh, to, to control the furious passions of these sordid individuals who are in government, just as we're seeing today. I mean, we have a Second Amendment right, but that doesn't stop the Democrat Party and the left from trying to take away that right. It's a constitutional right, but they don't care. They've already been stomping on it, eradicating it. And so here we go. But how dare any man who pretends to be a friend to the Negro thus gratuitously concede away what the Negro has a right to claim under the Constitution? Why should such friends invent new arguments to increase the hopelessness of his bondage? You see, there was a, a, a growing movement, obviously, during the Civil War that led to the Civil War and the abolition of slavery to say that the Constitution did not defend slavery. It did not promote it. And that was the grounds for going to Civil War. So he's saying... Why would friends invent these new arguments to increase the hopelessness? Why would you do this? This is what they're doing today in the Democrat Party. They're trying to create this hopelessness where there isn't any. All right, this I undertake to, stay, to say is the conclusion of the whole matter that the constitutionality of slavery can be made out only by disregarding the plain and common sense reading of the Constitution itself, by discrediting and casting away as worthless the most 
uh, beneficent rules of legal interpretation. By ruling the Negro outside of these beneficent rules, by claiming that the Constitution does not mean what it says, and that it says what it does not mean by disregarding the written Constitution. Of course, the Constitution says we the people. It doesn't say we the white people, we the rich people. It says we the people. And his point is, blacks are considered people. And you have to actually disregard the Constitution to promote slavery. But he goes on, and um, he says, I would act for the abolition of slavery through the government, not over its ruins. He wanted to defend, he wanted to protect this country. He saw what it could be if we just followed the law of the land. He said, if slaveholders have ruled the American government for the last 50 years, let the anti-slavery men rule the nation for the next 50 years. That's the point. Slavery wasn't in the Constitution, but pro-slavery advocates were in the government. And that's why it went on for so long. But despite this, despite the fact that in 1860, Frederick Douglass came out and made these claims and defended the Constitution, the left today, black Americans today in Congress and Maxine Waters and some of these others, are making the same claims that they did back then. I mean, the Democrat Party has not changed, and that's the point. But look, this is a, a locked and loaded show, and I want to add one more thing here when I say that, you know, Maxine Waters, Barack Obama, and these uh, African-American individuals in Congress are a disgrace to black Americans. It's not that there aren't issues in the black communities. There absolutely are, and I'm going to get into that because I've got a book I want to talk about written by Kenny Shu, all right? called An Inconvenient Minority, The Attack on Asian American Excellence and the Fight for Meritocracy, because this gets to the heart of the problem in America today and why we're facing such ruin, critical race theory, and all the rest. But, you know, see, Barack Obama, Maxine Waters, and African-American Democrats um, have made themselves useful pawns to the Democrat Party schemes. They have, they have made a deal with the devil. They have been given riches beyond most Americans' wildest dreams, power, and voices in society, and they use their positions of power to keep the average minority black American down. That's why they oppose school choice. And that's what we're going to get into again with Kenny Shue's um, uh, phenomenal, phenomenal, brilliant work um, in just a little bit here. But I'm going to take a short little break and I actually want to get into reading some of President Joe Biden's Fourth of July address. We're going to we're going to, of course, contrast that with how they treated Donald Trump and his two address Fourth of July addresses. And um, as we read through that, we're going to see the absolute insanity of this speech, how hypocritical it is, what a lie it is and what a disgrace Joe Biden is. But uh, this is Drew Allen and we're going to be right back. back at it, folks. This is your illustrious host, Drew Allen of The Drew Allen Show, the voice of confident conservatism, a millennial, the right's answer to AOC, if you will, with brain power beyond her wildest dreams. So, you know, the, um, the individual is talking about the, the, the African-American congressman who's done a 180 on this voter suppression in terms of uh, IDs nonsense. Well, you know, this is James Clyburn, of course. And um, 
You know, so he appeared on uh, CNN's State of the Union on Sunday. And uh, he's, he's, of course, a Democrat out of South Carolina. And he claimed he was always for voter ID. Well, he, uh, he had a tweet uh, back in October 23rd of 2020 in which he said, voter ID laws um, are voter suppression. But now all of a sudden, because it's not polling well and people know what a joke that is, I mean, you need a voter, you need an ID to buy alcohol, buy cigarettes, to get on a plane, to buy a house, to open a bank account. So, of course, that's not voter suppression. I mean, that's not oppression. But, of course, when you ask for one at the polls, the most important significant act we have in this country in a national capacity to elect a president of the United States and other government officials, well, only when you ask for an ID then is it voter suppression. But he knows that this is another roadblock for the Democrats. This is another uh, issue that is going to bring about their demise, and the people just aren't buying it anymore. So he has done a 180, and he now claims to have always been for um, voter ID laws. But anyway, before I get into Kenny Shu's book, and stay with me um, into, that, into the next segment here, because I'm going to get into that book because it's really significant, and I hope that you'll, you'll read it after I get done talking to you about it. But I want to use President Joe Biden's 4th of July speech uh, basically as the bones of the greater discussion of issues happening in this country at present. Because, well, this is unbelievable. I'm not going to read the whole thing, of course. I'm just going to pull some quotes from it, all right? So here, here's what Joe Biden said. This year, the 4th of July, is a day of special celebration, for we are emerging from the darkness of a year of pandemic and isolation, a year of pain, fear, and heartbreaking loss. Just think back to where this nation was a year ago. Think back to where you were a year ago and think about how far we've come. Now, this is absolutely insane because we have all the science, we have all the Fauci emails now, and we know that this, the, the, the lockdowns and everything else were not helping the situation in this country. You know, we've talked about it ad nauseum. Florida reopened. They got rid of all their mandates, social distancing uh, demands, and so on and so forth, thanks to Governor DeSantis. And then California, which doubled down, tripled down, quadrupled down on lockdowns, saw increasing skyrocketing cases and deaths, while Florida's went down. So we know that's nonsense. And so this year of pain and fear and isolation is because of leftists and cowardly rhinos. They are the ones, look, I don't have Stockholm Syndrome. You know, this is their fault. They did this to us as, a, as, a, as, a, as citizens. They are the ones who afflicted us. They are the ones who attacked us. They are the ones who, who, who spread this foreign peer campaign for over a year. So here's Joe Biden, you know, trying to celebrate. Oh, he's taking the foot off of our necks. So now we can finally... Uh, take off our masks in, in, in most cases, and uh, we can actually open our businesses and feed our families again. No thanks to them, okay? No thanks to them. But here we go. Here's a great one. This is one of my favorite parts of the speech. Businesses are opening and hiring again. Another lie, by the way. Yeah, businesses might be open because the government is permitting them to, which is a ridiculous, unconstitutional um, a disgrace that they shut us down to begin with. That is not their constitutional right to tell us when we can open and when we can't. But anyway, he says businesses are open, opening and hiring again. No, they're not in the state of California where I live. This is maddening. This is infuriating. 
they're not hiring again because in states like California and other blue states for the most part, they've extended unemployment businesses. Businesses are, 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 are like, are crying out. They're, they're you know, uh, they're putting out smoke signals, trying to beg people to come and, and work at their businesses. But they cannot fill these jobs because people are sitting on their lazy butts at home taking an unemployment check rather than going and getting a job. So they're not hiring again. We're seeing record job creation and record economic growth, the best in four decades, and I might add the best in the world. Is this guy insane? Where are the fact checkers on this? I mean, that is just bla- I, okay, let's just keep going. Today, all across this nation, we could say with confidence, America is coming back together. Just a couple weeks ago, folks, I said it on this show, this program. He just said America hasn't been this divided since the Civil War. Two weeks later, he says America is coming back together? What? I mean, how do these people get away with this kind of garbage? How can they just lie like this constantly? Well, we know the answer. They have a propagandist media protecting them that doesn't cover them in a fair way. They lie for the president. But it goes on, 245 years ago, we declared our independence from a distant king. Today, we're closer than ever to declaring our independence from a deadly virus. This is such a sick comparison. And, and of course, we have Maxine Waters, who isn't celebrating her independence from a distant king, because according to Maxine Waters and others on the left in the Democrat Party, we have nothing to celebrate on July 4th because, well, we still had slavery. So where are their cries of foul play when he makes this claim that we, you know, should somehow celebrate our independence from a distant king? And by the way, we have a king today. And it's not really Joe Biden, but it's whoever's running the show and pulling the strings. All right? And it's Gavin Newsom, these people. These are our new kings. Because our rights are no longer unalienable the way most Americans, not most, but many Americans, Democrats, and leftists view them. You know, they, they view these people as kings again because they think their rights come from them. Please, when can I take off my mask? If they, tell, if they put out the order tomorrow in California that this new strain of virus, the Lambda, and I'll get into that later, well, suddenly we have to mask up and hide in our homes again. Well, guess what? All the leftists in California are going to lock themselves behind their doors. That's how dire the situation is. Closer than ever to declaring our independence from a deadly virus. But he says we're closer than ever to declaring our independence from a deadly virus. But then he goes on, and you'll hear, as I continue to read the speech, they were apparently not that close from declaring our independence from a deadly virus because he won't let it go. He spends, as a matter of fact, I don't know what percentage, but a great portion of this, of this speech, July 4th speech, talking about the virus. So if we're so close, why do you constantly talk about it? Here he goes. He, right after he says we're cl close to declaring our independence from a deadly virus, he says, that's not to say the battle against COVID-19 is over. We've got a lot more work to do. But I thought you just said, Joe, that we're closer than ever to declare our independence. So he talks about 1776, but just as our declaration was a call to action, not a reason for complacency or a claim of victory, it was a call to action. The same is true today. Back then, we had the power of an idea on our side. Today, we have the power of science. Notice he never talks about what that idea was because they are stomping on that idea. They are subverting that idea. They are reversing that idea because the idea is that our rights don't come from them. And yet here they go along time and time again telling us that our rights come from them. That we have to sacrifice. We have to do this and that because they say so. Back then, we had the power of an idea on our side. Today, we have the power of science. No, the power of science 
is, um, is the new guard. The power of science is being misconstrued. It's not science at all, but science is now being wielded to control the people. So this is a joke as well. And he says, thanks to our heroic vaccine effort, we've gained the upper hand against this virus. Your vaccine effort, you had nothing to do with the vaccine. That was all Donald Trump. And I'm not even a vaccine guy. And I'm not going to get into it now. If you've heard me before, you know what, what I think about some of this stuff. But look, I'm not attacking people who've gotten the vaccine. But I'm just saying, this guy's taking credit for the vaccine when he had nothing to do with it. We can live our lives, he says. Our kids can go back to school. Our economy is roaring back. There he goes again with a lie. And then he says, don't get me wrong, COVID-19 has not been vanquished. We all know powerful variants have emerged like the Delta variant. Every time he says something positive about our economy roaring back, about our, us going back to normal, getting our lives, and so on and so forth, then he has to say, well, COVID-19 is still here, though. What, what, is he, what is this? This is so ridiculous. This is so absurd. This guy is so stupid. Honestly, I don't know who his speechwriter is, but I think Joe Biden could have written this speech because it's about on that level. It's so dumb and so ignorant that maybe Joe Biden is his own speechwriter. Because if he hired someone, if the White House is hiring someone to write this crap, I don't know. Maybe they're actually a really good speechwriter because they're writing it. It's like, it's like when you uh, plagiarize. Not plagiarize, but you know, you pay somebody in college to do your test. I never did that because, uh, well, I would have been the one getting paid to write uh, essays for other people, of course, as you, you well know. But, you know, it's equivalent to that. It's like, you know, if you pay somebody to write, a, write, you know, some essay for you, you know, that person has to write in the way that you would write. If you're kind of dumb, they kind of got to make some mistakes and write it dumb. Otherwise, the teacher knows that uh, you didn't write it because there's no way you could have. And this is kind of the same thing with Joe Biden here. He says, but the best defense against these variants is to get vaccinated. This is, this is actually my favorite part because it's disgusting. My fellow Americans, it is the most patriotic thing you can do. The most patriotic thing you can do is to get vaccinated? Is that a joke? I, I don't think I need to say more about that. But I want to pause here. As I said, this uh, speech is the skeleton of the show. He gave me a gift, a great gift. Thank you, Joe. So he's talking about the best defense of getting the, you know, against these variants is to get vaccinated and that it's the most patriotic thing you can do. But I've got an article here from the New York Post. Here's the headline. Fears arise that Lambda COVID-19 variant from Peru may be resistant to vaccines. Now, you know, if I, if I wasn't already in the know about how they were just using, uh, you know, the Greek alphabet to name these different variants, I would say, is this coming from a fraternity house? Is, is, is there a new fraternity house that is the origins of this virus? Because, you know, we had Delta, now we have Lambda, but of course they skipped like Upsilon. I don't know how they skip from Delta to Lambda. It's a little bit later in the alphabet. But anyway, so now, that, now scientists fear, this is the New York Post, that a highly contagious new COVID-19 variant that is ravaging Peru may be resistant to vaccines. I mean, my, I mean, maybe, maybe this, this, he didn't hear about this new Lambda thing that is um, uh, uh, apparently resistant to vaccines. So here he is. The most patriotic thing you can do is get vaccinated. But now we've got Lambda, which is uh, impervious to the vaccine. And of course, we've got Jin Saki, by the way. I'm sure you heard about this. She's claiming that they're now going to start going door to door to check and see if Americans have been vaccinated. What kind of Nazi Germany 
USSR Soviet-style garbage is that? They're going to go door-to-door and check if you've been vaccinated. What they didn't say is what they're going to do if you say no. That's what I'm curious about. Maybe this is a dry run, folks, a dry run uh, to see what will happen when they show up at your doors to confiscate your firearms. But anyway, the the concerning strain Lambda has since spread to around 30 countries. Um... In Peru, Lambda has accounted for 81% of new infections tested for variants since April, according to the World Health Organization. And uh, the WHO, however, has stressed that further studies are required to validate the continued effectiveness of vaccines with the new strain. Well, here we go. You know, they just, they can't give up um, the success that they had in stealing our liberty and power Um, I guess, exerting their power over the American citizen and throughout the world, but it doesn't really matter about the rest of the world because they don't have a constitution like we do, so there's no precedent. You know, they can do what they want elsewhere, but in this country, you can't. So here we go. Now we got Lambda waiting in the wings if they need it. So that's how this works, folks. Now we got Lambda, and it'll go on until we get to Zeta, I guess, or whatever. I don't know. The way they've been using this uh, virus anyway from the beginning was to say that it was apparently racist, right? It was uh, disproportionately attacking minority communities and so on and so forth. So maybe they'll, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll start mixing these things together. You know, if it starts to attack women in a disproportionate manner, they'll call it the Delta Gamma uh, strain or, uh, you know, historically black um, uh, fraternity houses will, will get their own strain if they, they, they want to racialize this racist virus again. But anyway, he says, so today, while the virus hasn't been vanquished, we know this, it no longer controls our lives, it no longer paralyzes our nation. And it's within our power to make sure it never does again. Not if Lambda has its way, Joe. Somebody needs to really get in this guy's ear and let him know what's going on, because, you know, this guy's about five days behind on the news of the day, and he's president of the United States. But here he goes, for that... We can thank the scientists and researchers, the educators, and all the frontline and essential workers. No, Joe, you can thank Donald Trump. You can thank Donald Trump. That's who you can thank for having the vaccine, Operation Warp Speed. You know, these guys rewrite history time and time again. This is no different than what they've done throughout their racist history since the Civil War until present of being the party of the KKK, uh, the party of the Confederacy, and the party of racism. But here we go again. Oh, yeah, they've, they have, you know, yeah, he's, he's responsible for this vaccine effort. Oh, man. So we Americans believe, this is Joe Biden continuing, in honesty and decency, in treating everyone with dignity and respect, giving everyone a fair shot, demonizing no one, giving hate no safe harbor, leaving no one behind. This is, um, this is unbelievable. Uh, so, so, he believes in honesty, honesty and decency? Is this not the party that is accusing anyone who voted for Trump as being a white supremacist? Is this not the, um, the party that is weaponizing the FBI, the CIA, uh, uh, to go after innocent Americans who are Trump supporters? Is this not the, the same Democrat party who has used the NSA to spy on Tucker Carlson, violating his constitutional rights? and violating the law? Is this not the same Democrat Party um, that is encouraging leftist Marxists in this country via Facebook and tools like that to, with a click of a button, report their neighbors and friends as domestic terrorists so the FBI can show up at your door unannounced and tell you 
They've heard you're a domestic terrorist? A proud boy? My goodness, folks. These people are the ones demonizing all of us. They're the ones that promote and spew hate day in and day out. And they're the ones who leave every man behind. I've got another story here that we'll get to a little bit later about how, well, an individual who correctly predicted the Great Recession of 2008 predicting another one's coming. Uh, we've got inflation creeping up. We've got skyrocketing gas prices. We've got a Democrat party and a fake president who is attacking America's independence, who's weakening our defenses, who is putting America last, leaving no one behind. The Democrat party is leaving the American citizen behind. He says, we lead by the power of our example, not the example of our power. That's a lie. The power of your example, not the example of your power. All they want is power. All right, let's see if there's anything else worth saying here, folks. Here we go. Um, so he believes in the right to rise in the world as far as your God-given talent can take you. Unlimited by barriers of privilege or power. This is a great sequitur into the masterpiece written by Kenny Shu called An Inconvenient Minority, The Attack on Asian American Excellence and the Fight for Meritocracy. We'll be right back. Joe Biden put on his uh, spectacular fireworks show in which a thousand plus people were present, maskless, uh, to take in the glorious occasion. You know, Christy Nome was not allowed. She was barred from having a fireworks show at Mount Rushmore in South Dakota. Now, of course, that's the location in 2020 where uh, President Trump gave his speech, and they did a fireworks show. And that's nothing more than an attack on political opposition. That's what that was about. One of the reasons, of course, that they uh, claimed that they were putting a stop and forbidding Chrissy Nome from holding that glorious 4th of July celebration at Mount Rushmore was the pandemic. They were worried about the pandemic. But of course, Joe Biden wasn't worried about the pandemic. And look, folks, don't worry. I'm not putting you on. I'm not putting you on. I just, there's so much to get through and I've got so many things to say. I'm about to get the, to the Kenny Shoe book, uh, An Inconvenient Minority, in just a moment. But I want to say, you know, uh, a spokesperson for Joe Biden, when questions about, when questioned about whether you know, there were some concerns because of the Delta variant being out there and so on and so forth. It was perhaps irresponsible to hold this fireworks display and invite all these unmasked leftists to enjoy the celebration of the Capitol. Uh, this spokesperson, Zients, I don't know how his name is, Z-I-E-N-T-S, whatever his name is, he said, I think most of these folks are vaccinated, but at the end of the day, it's an individual choice. We hope all individuals make the right choice here and get vaccinated. 
So he hopes, he says it's an individual choice. This doesn't compute either because they're not saying it's an individual choice because his whole speech was about saying the most patriotic thing you can do is get vaccinated. Jin Psaki did a press conference in which she's now saying that they're going to organize and get people to go door to door to check on your vaccination status and try and coerce you, convince you to get the vaccine. This doesn't make any sense. And then, of course, Biden, you know, he was he was hoping to proclaim this weekend that 70% of American adults had received at least one COVID-19 shot. He's been saying this all along. This is the goal. This is the goal. Well, they didn't reach the goal. Officials acknowledged more than a week ago the goal wouldn't be met as they struggle to, as they say, convince still resistant Americans to get shots. What about the individual choice, Zints? You're calling these people still resistant Americans? Well, that's their individual choice, is it not? So according to their figures, the CDC, about 67% of Americans 18 and older had received at least one shot, but it fell short. Can you imagine, folks, if Donald Trump had said, our goal is to get 70% vaccinated, and then he didn't reach it? They would be destroying him, lambasting him, telling him what a failure he was, that he was neglecting his duties as a, as a president, that he, was, he should be impeached probably for not reaching that goal. But, you know, according to this article, for Biden and his aides, reality is setting in that getting the entire country vaccinated will be the work of his entire presidency. How about that? His entire presidency is going to be devoted towards making people get the vaccine. That's about right, because I don't know what else he's doing in his presidency, faux presidency. Well, we know what he's doing. He's destroying America as we know it. But that's good to know. So Joe Biden... His only sole focus for his entire presidency is going to be getting you vaccinated because that's the most important job of the president of the United States. Forget the border crisis. Forget minority communities and inner cities that are suffering and don't have opportunities. Forget the economy. Joe Biden's going to be making sure that everyone gets vaccinated, uh, paying new bureaucrats that will never go out of existence, that will have uh, exist in perpetuity to continue to go door to door and ask you and me if we've been vaccinated. And that's about how it works, folks, with the bureaucracy. And again, Kenny Shu addresses that too. Once a bureaucracy is created to do something, uh, they like their, their paychecks from we the taxpayers, and they will do anything they have to to ensure that that job remains for them, period. And so officials don't currently expect Biden to set any more numerical goals when it comes to vaccinations. So there he goes. He's just bowing out. You know, he's not going to set any more goals. Uh, so what? You know, they, they'd be demanding these goals from Trump, by the way. He wouldn't be able um, to leave the White House or go to a press conference without them saying, uh, Trump, Trump, uh, racist Trump, um, orange man, uh, wh what's your new vaccination goal? What's your vac new vaccination goal based on your previous failure that you didn't reach 70%? Is it, is it gonna, are you going to keep it at 70%? What are you doing to make sure that happens? But, uh, of course, the officials in a in Biden's administration, I always want to say Obama because that's the administration that actually is underway here. Um, but, you know, they're, they're just going to do everything they can to get all these uh, individuals, Americans, vaccinated, despite the fact that the Lambda vaccination now proves um, to not respond to the vaccination. So here we go again. All right, folks, here we go. Kenny Shu. Now, I don't know Kenny Shu uh, well. Uh, I will say this about Kenny Shu. I had the great opportunity... Uh, to meet him. We, we did a political roundtable together a few weeks ago, 
And before we went on the show, it was it was uh, via our computer, Skype, I believe, something along those lines. And before we went on, we had a chance to chat a little bit. And uh, this is a very impressive individual. Uh, I am a very, very intelligent person. Um, this guy is brilliant, especially when it comes to this particular subject matter. Now, the book is called An Inconvenient Minority, The Attack on Asian American Excellence and the Fight for Meritocracy. So, in the preface of Shu's book, uh, he states that there are dark stains on the history of this nation. And he's right, there are. But where Shu is different than leftists is that he doesn't use his book to condemn America for its past, but he uses his book to celebrate America for its triumphs. And more importantly, he uses the book to explain how we can continue to make progress in this country instead of regressing as we are. And so after he says there are dark stains in the history of this nation, he says, they are terrible errors. We should be proud to have made so much progress in mostly, though not completely, overcoming. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. The reason we haven't made so much, the reason we haven't completely overcome them is because the Democrat Party stands in the way. And that's the truth. And that's what we're going to get to here. So look, folks, you know, the, 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 the biggest problem in America today is not how much further we have to go to for, fulfill our original charter of freedom and equality for all. Actually, the, the concern is how quickly and how far we've regressed, well, in a matter of years from achieving this end. I mean, the Democrat Party has literally, you know, since 1776, we have charted a course towards freedom. All right? Yes, we're not perfect. But what's amazing about America is we've conquered those flaws. As we talked about earlier with Frederick Douglass, the Constitution was a brilliant document, a beautiful document, that led to the Republican Party being born and Abraham Lincoln, our first Republican president, who fought a civil war. 600,000 plus Americans gave their lives, white Americans mostly, to abolish slavery. And then we had a civil rights movement, of course, a civil rights movement that was peaceful, mostly. Um, to finally get rid of, quote-unquote, systemic racism, finally to eliminate segregation and discrimination that was lawful, all right? It made it illegal. But look, you can banish uh, lawful segregation. You can banish uh, the institution of slavery, but you cannot banish evil from the hearts of man. And that's the problem. We still have evil men with cold, sordid hearts, sordid hearts, and they are in government. And that's the problem we have today, and that's why we're regressing. But <clears throat> despite these important achievements, look, all that progress is being undone. And Kenny Shu, in his book, identifies the root cause of America's rapid regression. Now look, while the Democrat Party and Kamala Harris uh, are searching in vain for root cause, because they're not actually looking for root cause, they're just saying they're looking for a root cause so they can do nothing, and can you continue to perpetuate these, these afflictions upon America so they can continue to exacerbate them so they have a platform to run on? You know, remember this about the Democrat Party. And this goes back to Saul Alinsky, who is their god, okay? Uh, their guiding light, if you will. Uh, the Democrat Party creates problems and then presents themselves as those uniquely qualified to solve them. That's how they operate. But Kenny Shu writes... The attack on Asian American excellence represents the decline 
of a larger concept in American society that has allowed its culture of excellence to prosper. Meritocracy. What is meritocracy? That is not judging people, as Martin Luther King Jr. would have said, by the color of their skin, but their character, by their hard work. That is not looking at skin color and promoting people based on something that has nothing to do with their ability. That's what has made America great. That's why New York City was so astounding. We had immigrants come here through Staten Island, legally, who were determined to achieve and experience the American dream. They came here not speaking the language. They came here with uh, you know, limited skill sets. But they wanted to find greener pastures, and that greener pasture was here in America. And they did everything they could, literally picked themselves up from the, by the bootstraps because there was not a welfare system in place back then. There were no guarantees of freebies for these people. They risked everything to come from wherever they came, from whatever country they came from, to come to America and start over. Because in America, we had a meritocracy. And they knew that if they worked hard and were dedicated, they could give themselves a better life than they had in their previous country of origin. And they could definitely guarantee that for their children and posterity. And so I want to say Shu... Uh, you know, he does two critical things in this book. He shines a spotlight on the disturbing and these unsung attacks against Asian Americans because no one ever thinks about Asian Americans in their minority status in this country. It's always about Latinos, blacks, but never Asians. And Asians are also a minority in this country, but they get overlooked because they aren't a part of the Democrat Party scheme. They aren't yet victims. You know, they escaped the civil rights movement. Not the civil rights movement, but what happened afterwards, which was Democrats then realizing that if they wanted to retain power, they had to flip things quickly. They had to convince the black American first that the Democrat Party was their friend so they could secure those votes. So they went to churches, gave them, gave them hot meals, did this and that, and said, look, we're for you now. But what they really did was engage in a modern form of slavery, keeping them down and telling them that they could never get anywhere but for the Democrat Party. But the Democrat Party simultaneously keeps them down through their policies so that it's just like a vicious cycle, all right? But look, what, what, what Shu does brilliantly is, of course, he's, he's looking at things, this elimination of a meritocracy through the eyes of what's happening in the Asian-American minority community, but he's also making the greater statement that this is also ushering in the decline of America as a whole. It affects all of us. What's happening to the Asian American community is, in fact, a microcosm of, of, of the destruction of the meritocracy overall in America. And look, I mean, the Asian American community, um, they've been discriminated against forever. Remember, I mean, as recently as World War II, Japanese Americans were put in internment camps. Blacks weren't put in internment camps. Latinos weren't put in internment camps. It was Japanese Americans, Asian Americans. And that was FDR, Democrat president, who did that to them. But even though these Asian, well, these people of Asian descent um, knew about the discrimination that happened here and what they were going to face, the obstacles ahead of them, not speaking English, for example, the risk that they would take in coming here, hundreds of thousands still immigrated here just as they do today, but for different reasons. And this is a, a very stark difference and an important observation that Shu makes.
okay? Look, Asians immigrated here because they had a desire to experience the American dream, and they knew that there was no welfare state for them. Look, unlike other minority groups, like, look at blacks and Latinos, for example. There's no welfare state for them. There's no affirmative action for the Asian American community. And Shu writes about this. He says, Asians don't have the victim capital that ambitious black and Hispanic people can use to demand representation as a matter of morality. So the upshot, and this basically, I want to say this, this actually proves the point that the welfare state is a disaster. It actually contributes to the problem in minority communities because Asian Americans don't get anything, and yet the upshot is they're forced to work hard because they can't rely on a safety net or the aforementioned things that, that Shu writes about. Um, so they're forced to make it without welfare on their own. And they do. They do. <clears throat> Shu presents this example, which is great. So Thomas Jefferson High School, this is in Virginia. Uh, it's widely known as one of the greatest schools in the region uh, for math and science. Well, Thomas Jefferson High School, in 2020, they accepted 486 students from a pool of 2,539 applicants. Only 486 students. Now, guess what percentage of those are Asians? 73%. 73% are Asians. That's astounding. And so the Asian-American success without this great welfare state it's a powerful argument against the welfare state and racial quotas because Asian Americans succeed without government assistance. In fact, I would say this. They actually succeed precisely because they don't depend on it. And this is the dirty little secret of this country. The Democrat Party uses the perpetual welfare state to limit people's dreams and to convince them that they cannot succeed in this country as it is. But that is not true. It is a form of slavery. And that's what critical race theory is all about. It's about promoting this narrative in perpetuity for future generations that America is an inherently racist place, whites uh, have uh, benefits and just by birth, and blacks can never get ahead of whites because... Uh, well, they're victims because of something that happened 200 and, you know, 45 years ago and then obviously came to an end with the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement. But again, I'll say, that's not the experience of black Americans or white Americans or anyone else today. But despite the Asians, Asian American success, it's not celebrated. They are under attack and they're under attack by the Democrat Party. And because they're, look, the Asian American community represents the ideals of America. They represent independence, autonomy, of hard work, and what you can do if you're determined and ambitious to accomplish something. So what's happening to the, American, the, the Asian American in this country is happening to America, the American dream. And elite universities, this is the point that Shu makes, are leading the attack against Asian Americans and the meritocracy. So Shu explains this. He says, at Harvard, Asian Americans have the lowest admittance rate out of all the races despite having higher grades and test scores. It's not just higher grades and test scores. 
It's, it's, it's remarkable how much higher their test scores are. So they suffer from the lowest acceptance rate for each SAT test score bracket, but they have to score on average 140 points higher than their white counterparts, 270 points higher on average than their Hispanic counterparts, and they have to score 450 points higher than their black counterparts for equal chances of admission. This is discrimination against Asian Americans, and it's happening at our elite institutions like Harvard. This has been going on for a long time, and Shu is finally taking on this behemoth, this sick, dirty secret in the underbelly of American society. So racism is systemic in this country, but it, the effort is being led not by conservatives or Republicans, but by the Democrat Party and elitist leftists at Harvard and elsewhere. And after the George Floyd death, Thomas Jefferson High School, the school board, they put forth the most drastic admissions policy they had ever done in the history of that high school. They created an admission lottery, and that reduced merit admission to 100 out of the previous 480 spots. So 100 are merit-based, and the remaining uh, 380 were going to be a lottery system. And so the stated goal, of course, is to increase the number of black and Hispanic students in that school. But that doesn't address the problem. This is what Shu writes. Solving these problems requires addressing them at every level of education, not putting promising but underqualified black and Hispanic students through the meat grinder that is Thomas Jefferson High School for Mathematics and Science. Because if you take somebody who isn't prepared and they don't have the foundation built to succeed in a difficult course like this, you're setting them up for failure and disappointment. Okay? Think of it this way. Collegiate and uh, professional basketball courts are disproportionately occupied by black athletes. They earn those spots, I'd like to add, because they're the best. And they have to be the best because there's a lot of money involved. And collegiate and professional sports are in the business of winning. It is a meritocracy. But if you applied this same sick, perverted ideology to the professional and collegiate sports world as you are doing to both businesses and schools, as is, is the case with Thomas and Jefferson High School, well, you would look at those courts and you'd say, well, 95% of these athletes are black, so we are going to um, replace you with whites, Asians, Hispanics, uh, because we want your basketball team to conform to the cosmetic makeup of the United States, and blacks are disproportionately represented on this court. So we're actually going to take and rob black Americans, who are the best basketball players in the world, from opportunity, and give those opportunities to people who haven't achieved it, who aren't quite ready. That's exactly what this amounts to, and it hasn't yet taken over in the sports world, there are some efforts underway, but they have not succeeded. And they haven't succeeded because of the involvement of money. And, um, and because sports are in the business of winning. No one would watch you anymore if you lost season after season. So it doesn't happen there. But the point is that Shoe makes is that this is happening in the education system and in businesses as they're recruiting people based on their skin color. That is not, that is not, that is a definition of racism. 
And these Asian Americans are being disproportionately targeted because they work hard, they earn these, these, these opportunities through their, their hard work, dedication, and study and ambition, and then they're being overlooked and replaced by people who didn't put in the same work, haven't accomplished what they've done, just because these schools are saying, we have too many Asians. That is sick, and it is an absolutely regressive policy that is antithetical to the fabric of the United States of America. But look, Shu, Shu doesn't just talk about statistics, and that's what's wonderful about this book. He actually gets into concrete, specific, personal examples that are effective, all right? He talks about how, um, well, Daniel Tan, all right? This is an individual, Shu mentions, who, who his family immigrated to America from the Philippines after the 2008 Great Recession. Now, Tan says... Daniel Tan, the one who's the son of these immigrants who came over in 2008, says his family came to escape the corruption of the Filipino government. What a surprise for Tan today, because I guess he had no idea. And God bless you, Tan, and I'm sorry for those corrupt individuals in our country and the Democrat Party today, because our government is rivaling the most corrupt governments in the world today. But they came here to find greener pastures, Tan says, and they chose America. But when Daniel applied to go to college, by the way, this guy, this guy was working at a Red Lobster washing dishes to earn some extra money to hopefully also pay for his college tuition because his family didn't have anything. They came to America. They escaped. And they did it the legal, lawful way. And this is what is disgusting, and this is what must be fixed. And Daniel Tan is the reason. He is a face to the injustice that is happening with these illegal border crossings and this welfare state and these freebies that are being given to people who cheat and who are not willing to come to this, this country in a lawful manner. So he comes through here, through, through, he comes to America legally, applies for a visa, goes through all the, the, the costly and timely um, uh, sacrifices that it takes to become a legal citizen here. And so when he applies to college, he learned that the 2011 California Dream Act gave in-state tuition to all DACA students waiving non-resident tuition for them that Daniel would have had to pay his first year. Now, the average in-state tuition at San Joaquin Delta College in California is $1,288 per year. But for an out-of-stater like Daniel, it was $9,072 a year. So if you, are an illegal, if you are the son or daughter of an illegal immigrant who broke the law and came here unlawfully, you get in-state tuition if you're a DACA kid. But if you're Daniel, who escaped the corruption in the Philippines and came here legally, well, you have to pay $9,072 a year. And Shu writes, how is this fair, Daniel asked himself, when his mom was the one who fought for a visa to legally enter this country, and then the children of undocumented immigrants, those who didn't go through the legal entry process, not only cut him and his mother in line for immigration, but get a fat tuition cut on top of it? And as Shu explains, eruditely, succinctly, correctly, they took from those who worked hard and played by the rules to artificially grant spots for their preferred races. And um, that brings me to another point. Uh, because critical race theory is, well, we're experiencing immense pushback against critical race theory right now. 
We've seen it everywhere. But it doesn't matter for the Democrat Party and the leftists in the uh, socialist, communist, Marxist teachers union throughout this country, who, as a, as a organizational body, has no interest in your children's education. They're all about themselves and power. They're all about lobbying politicians and getting more money, more retirement benefits for themselves at the expense of your children. So CRT, critical race theory, and Shu writes about this, and I encourage you to pick up his book. It's on Amazon, okay? It's called An Inconvenient Minority. And again, it's about the disastrous consequences of the elimination of a meritocracy and how this is going to lead to the destruction of America when you no longer can compete in an international stage because you are not putting forward your best candidates. You're just putting people in positions based on the color of their skin. And critical race theory is at the heart of all of this. And um, Shu explains it very well in his book if you, if you haven't quite grasped what it is yet. But um, here's an article. I think this is BizPack Review. The headline is over 5,000 teachers reportedly signed position pledging to push CRT regardless of the law. So it doesn't matter if the law says CRT is um, not permitted. These rogue animals, these 5,000 teachers are pledging they're going to they're gonna teach it, to cram it down your children's throat regardless of what you want, these totalitarians. These leftists are sick, folks. They are the cancer that is destroying America. So here we go. We are the we the undersigned educators will not be bullied, it reads. We will continue our commitment to develop critical thinking that supports students to, to better understand problems in our society and to develop collective solutions to those problems. We are for truth-telling and uplifting the power of organizing and solidarity that move us toward a more just society. Um, this is not a more just society. These people are critical Marxists, and um, they won't be bullied. But they're going to bully you and me, and they're going to do whatever they want to us, uh, to hell with uh, America, to hell with the, us. Uh, it's their ideology, their, 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 their disgusting, rotten ideology they're going to force down our throats because they are... Well, they're like Barack Obama. They're professional agitators. They're community activists. And um, they want to bring about revolution in this country, just as Saul Alinsky um, put forward in his, his book, Rules for Radicals. So, you know, this is a Marxist doctrine, and it teaches that America is a wicked and racist nation that even young children are complicit in oppression, that our entire society must be radically transformed. And this is being forced in our children's schools. And you know what? There's another article. So, so it came out today. I have the article in front of me. I'll get to it another time. But um, if you've noticed, there's a lot of more uh, LGBTQ plus characters and storylines um, in various TV shows, movies, uh, Netflix, anywhere you look. And it's now known that this has been a coordinated effort to force this in the mainstream. This is absolutely disgusting. Um, these people represent an absolute minority of society. And 
you know, forcing transgenderism down the throats of Americans is a joke. It, it, it makes no sense on its face. I mean, we the people here also have a say in how our society moves forward in what is moral and what we want to teach to our children. And yet this tiny fraction, you know, well under 5% of the population is saying, no, you're going to accept whatever it is that we want. We're being held hostage and the propagandist media, Hollywood, the Democrat Party, GLAD, all these organizations are in on it. And uh, it's time we put our foot down and we can't tolerate this anymore. And um, I'll say this last thing about um, Kenny Shue's book, because it is the answer to critical race theory. It dismantles it completely, and it, it gets into a historical perspective also about why Asian Americans uh, haven't succumbed to this victimhood mentality, why they aren't uh, under the thumb of the Democrat Party like other minority groups, and it's because they were never considered important in terms of uh, conquering and in the welfare state. But it's an amazing book, and uh, we've got a few more things to cover here, folks, when we get back. Um, we've got the mortgage crisis that's coming, that's looming in our future. We've got uh, July 4th violence uh, again in Chicago and some of our other major cities. And we've also got, well, you'll probably want to hear my take on the controversy surrounding the Women's World Cup team who uh, turned their backs to a World War II veteran and the flag. And of course, we'll end on a fun note with a GOP hopeful who once was renowned, uh, the renowned author. He's a renowned author who, um, uh, he's, well, he's desperately begging Trump to take him back after, well, tweeting out and publicly condemning Trump in the past. But that's good news for us, folks, because what, despite the media says about Trump's chances being hopeless and that he is, um, well, he has no future and that he's going to be the ruin of the Republican Party. Well, it doesn't seem to be that way because these individuals in the GOP who once condemned him are now begging for his endorsement. All right, we'll be right back, folks. I want to circle back to this unfairness in America with regard to the treatment of illegals who break the law to come into this country compared to the treatment of legal immigrants who go through the lawful channels. If you're just listening to me for the first time, well, this is an issue that is, uh, well, of particular importance to all Americans, but I happen to have a unique take on the issue of illegal immigration because I myself was a legal resident in Italy when I was only 23, 22 years old because I moved to Milan and worked in fashion, opening and managing a retail store. I had Italian employees. I had a Italian identification card. I had a visa. And I was there legally. And while many in Milan, where I lived, certainly spoke English, and even the 
Italian employees, all the employees were Italian of mine. They also spoke English because they were working for an American fashion company. But I spoke Italian while I was there. It doesn't mean I never spoke English, but I spoke Italian. When I went out at night, I made Italian friends. I interacted with older Italians who did not even speak English. I practiced, tried to improve my Italian because I was in Italy. I did not fly an American flag out of my window in Corso di Como in Milan. I didn't wrap myself in the American flag as I walked down the street. And I didn't demand freebies from the Italian government. Now, of course, I did not have the desire to become an Italian citizen because I was a proud American citizen. And while I love Italian culture, and much of me, honestly, even the way that I talk in English, when I talk quickly, as you may have noticed in this program, I gesticulate a lot, much of that is informed, is, is behavior that I took on from my experience in Italy, living like the Italians do. But had I wanted to stay in Italy, had I sought to overstay my visa and not seek citizenship, but to enjoy the social benefits of, uh, well, on the backs of the Italian taxpayers and not come back to my own country, had I decided to break the law and stay there illegally, I would have been in the wrong. And the Italian government would have had every right to send me back home. And so that's where I come from with this. And I, I want to say this too. I have no... I don't... Look, as an American, I certainly don't believe in punishing the children of those who came here illegally and broke the law. But I also believe that we cannot be in the business of granting blanket amnesty. No, we're not punishing the children, but we don't have to send them home, but we can give them an opportunity to become American citizens. That's the quote-unquote pathway to citizenship. Their parents won't be extended that right. They broke the law. But the children, upon proving they can speak proficient English, upon taking a citizenship exam, like any legal, lawful, I guess the point is they have to go through the exact same procedure, tedious, costly, that any legal immigrant would go through. And upon finishing that course, upon proving that they want to assimilate, then if they so desire, they can become American citizens. But the problem in America is we don't have assimilation. We have pockets. I mean, look, you can go to Miami and get in a cab or an Uber 
and have someone who's in their 50s driving you who does not speak English. And when you ask them how long they've been in this country, they say, oh, 20 years, 25 years. 20, 25 years and you don't speak English? You live in America for 20, 25 years and you don't speak English? No, I'm not being discriminatory, but I'm being realistic. Can you imagine me spending two and a half years in, in Milan, Italy, working legally, and I never learned Italian? I never spoke Italian? I couldn't speak Italian? I just spoke Spanish to every Italian person and assumed that they should speak English? No, no, no. No, no. That's wrong, and that's the problem in America. But anyway, I digress. You know, <clears throat> even as I come in this show and I prepare to, to give you this uh, outstanding, informative show to combat the Marxist cancer that afflicts this country and to fight back against indoctrination and make new converts to the cause of freedom, uh, the news breaks. And things that I didn't even anticipate talking about happen. Uh, the White House, for example, a statement, of course, from our favorite Jen Psaki, says Biden would certainly support states reimposing coronavirus restri restrictions. That's the headline. I don't need to read any more. The headline says it all that follows in the article. He would certainly support states reimposing coronavirus restrictions. These people are totalitarians, and they do not want to give up power. Um... That's a very disconcerting, a really disturbing statement from, from the White House because we know what the science has been. We know the devastation that has been uh, brought about in this country based on these coronavirus restrictions. And here's Biden saying, yeah, let's just do it. Let's repeat history. But that's what the Democrat Party does. What you have to begin to understand is they do not care about America. They hate America. And so them destroying America is fine so long as they retain power. If the end result is our demise, but their enrichment and um, permanent, well, rule over America, it's okay. And that must be accepted by those in this country who are already relatively free and clear thinking on the right conservative side. And there's another story. This one broke a little earlier. It caught my attention. I didn't think I'd get to it, but I'm going to get to it because it's, it's, it's just, it's remarkable. Do you remember Andrew Cuomo, of course, the individual who um, not only was responsible for the absolutely irresponsible sending of COVID-positive patients into nursing homes, an absolutely insane thing to do, which resulted in tens of thousands of COVID deaths, because of course the, the most vulnerable people with common sense, even if you didn't know anything else, were the elderly, those in nursing homes. And of course, Cuomo sent COVID positive patients into the nursing homes, which turned those into, uh, well, death labs. That's what they became, death centers. And of course, Andrew Cuomo you know, it's funny. So many people on the right got their hopes up, I think, that um, when more, more women came forward than had accused Bill Clinton and Bill Cosby combined of um, harassment, etc., at the hands and in the presence of Andrew Cuomo, I think people thought, oh, yeah, finally, you know, we had the Me Too movement. You know, Andrew Cuomo's gone. 
Uh, his future uh, political career is coming to a rapid end. <laughs> Not so fast. Of course, no one talks about that anymore. Um, there's not a word in the news. People thought, oh, Andrew Cuomo might be a sacrificial lamb uh, for the Democrat Party. But it didn't happen. They moved on from it. And, um, well, he is seizing emergency powers to fight gun violence. He's calling it a public health emergency. Now, this has been mentioned by the Biden administration in the past. And you and I should pay very close attention to this. Because what the Democrat Party has been doing and continues to do they're putting feelers out. Okay? You have to understand that nothing that happens in the Democrat Party is by accident. It is all strategic and thought out. So Andrew Cuomo is putting out the test, putting out the feelers. How much unconstitutional power grabbing and abuse can he get away with in a Democrat state like New York? So he's going to fight gun violence by declaring it a public health emergency. Now, the public health emergency that was declared to combat COVID resulted in the loss of our rights. Our businesses were closed, forced closed, as the governors decided, based on whatever statistical data they were looking at. They... In California, where I live, of course, Gavin Newsom imposed curfews where you were prohibited from leaving your house between the dangerous hours of 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. where COVID was its most dangerous, like a vampire. There was nothing that they could not do. They imposed mask mandates, social distancing. In California, they... The police were used to arrest people paddleboarding alone with no one within a mile of them. In Santa Monica, for example, people were arrested on planes. Essentially, it brought about a totalitarian and tyrannical rule. So now Andrew Cuomo is trying what the Democrat Party has been thinking about for a long time, which is declaring gun violence a public health emergency, and then unilaterally removing piece by piece, dismantling, seizing our Second Amendment right to bear arms. Of course, the Constitution says that right shall not be infringed upon, but we're already beyond that. It's been infringed upon for many, many, many years. And so here is Andrew Cuomo, fighting gun violence. And this, this comes back to something important. You know, I know that we've talked about the fact that Democrats know that the defund the police movement is destructive to them as a political party. And so now they're trying to lay that at the feet of the Republican Party, literally making up, lying, bold-faced, that Republicans are the... Uh, the ones who defunded the police. But while they say that, I think that, well, I know that, what, how do I say this, folks? Look, as you just heard me say, everything the Democrat Party does is by design. There's always a plan. 
There's always a long-term objective, and the Republicans are useless at understanding the game and the strategy. But I am not, and that's why I'm sitting here behind this microphone, because as I've said, I'm uniquely qualified, well, to dismantle and warn you and let you know and assess what the situation is and what they're up to. Because I've spent my entire adult life in Democrat circles, studying them, being challenged. And so, well, so much going on that I just lost my thought, but it'll come back to me, folks. I never, ever uh, completely forget. But um, think about this with Cuomo. I, I want to read kind of a little bit of that statement. So he says, just like we did with COVID, New York is going to lead the nation once again with a comprehensive approach to combating and preventing gun violence. And our first step is acknowledging the problem with a first-in-the-nation disaster emergency on gun violence. When we see an injustice, we don't look the other way. We stand up and fight it because that's the New York way, the governor added. Cuomo's new strategy, the governor's office explained, treats gun violence as a public health crisis, using short-term solutions to manage the immediate gun violence crisis and reduce that shooting rate. So here's what I was going to say before, folks. All this violence you're seeing that has spread at a rapid rate, unprecedented rate in American history throughout these Democrat-run cities. It's intentional. I want to repeat that. It is intentional. Look, the, the Soros-backed DA in Los Angeles County has contributed to violence. Um, offenders are being released and put out into the streets, even with rap sheets, they go for pages and pages and pages. And, you know, short of essentially killing somebody, uh, these penalties are being uh, lessened and these people are being forgiven and released. And one thing we know, actually, data-driven, truth, cold hard facts, is that, you know, violent criminals who commit assault, battery, etc., abuse their wives, while violent offenders continue to be violent. And when you put them back on the streets and give them a slap on the wrist, they go right back to committing that sort of behavior. And so there is a very clear reason why violence has gone up, and that is also because of the Democrat Party. And so now that they have this narrative, which is true and it's harming American citizens and it's absolutely sick and perverted, well, the more gun violence, the better for them. Because remember, in crises, the Democrat Party, even though they cause it, present themselves as the ones who are going to solve the problem. They create the problem and then say they're the ones who have to solve it. And so now they have a gun violence narrative and it's not a proliferation of, um, well, it's a proliferation of criminal behavior and amorality. And the Democrat Party is now going to weaponize the violence that they've incited with BLM, Antifa, and releasing criminals into the streets to justify 
taking away our Second Amendment right to defend ourselves. Now, of course, the law-abiding citizen, by, by definition, is not committing crimes. And the unlawful American citizen who is committing crimes, by definition, does not abide by the law. So taking the guns from me and you, who now, of course, want them more than ever and need them more than ever to defend ourselves, are going to see that Second, right, Second Amendment right that we have under assault like you've never seen in your lifetime, like you wouldn't believe. But, you know, the truth, too, is that, you know, the Constitution provides us unalienable rights. But, you know, that's, of course, subject, subject to the law-abiding nature and morality of those in government. To come full circle, we talked about slavery. It's not in the Constitution and protecting the Constitution. But the reason slavery persisted is because pro-slavery individuals who didn't care about the Constitution, who were amoral and sordid, as Frederick Douglass would say, well, they held the levers of power. They were in government. And so here we are again, back to square one. We have amoral, tyrannical, totalitarian-minded individuals in government who don't care about the Constitution. They just care about themselves and whatever they want, and what they want is power. What they want is, is subjects. What they want is a return to the, the days of King George III, where they say jump and we say how high. And that's what this is all about, folks. I told you I wouldn't forget. I always come back to it. But, you know, we've got other things going on, too. You know, we've got... Look, I want you to always remember, these rhinos have to go, folks. If we don't get rid of the rhinos, and we know who they are, McConnell. I've said it time and time again. You know, he does one or two things and comes out and pretends like he's a tough guy. And then we forget about his past transgressions. Well, now he's, he's coming out pushing COVID-19 vaccines amid this Delta variant worry. I mean, this guy is no different than anyone on the left. He just talks a different game. But in the end, the left gets what they want. And I don't know how many times I have to say, too, there can't be any compromise anymore. Get compromise out of your vocabulary with these people on the left. You know, I know how the leftists think and the Democrats, even the, the ones who are maybe your friends and family, who are just misguided. But overall, you know, the leftist mentality is dangerous. Uh, there was an individual... Um, an older man, a white man, who was uh, killed in an accident. I think a car hit him at a NASCAR event. And I, you wouldn't believe, I mean, I hope you're not on Twitter. I have to be, as I've said, because uh, for publicity and things like that, that my burgeoning, skyrocketing um, podcasting and writing career demands. But um, leftists on Twitter went to town laughing, celebrating, saying, well, one more Trump supporter is dead. This is how they behave overall. I mean, they are very, very sick. And what they keep saying, of course, is that we on the right are the totalitarians. We don't want this. We want to suppress this. We want... But they're liars. And we got to get past this idea that, well, they have a point too. They don't have a point. They're wrong. They're absolutely wrong. When they say we're totalitarian, they're liars. 
We're the ones who are being attacked by the Democrat Party. We're the ones who are having our rights stepped on. We're the ones who are being called uh, racist, and so on and so forth. So just get it out of your mind. Um, you know, the left, the Democrat Party believes that eight-year-olds should, should have the fundamental right of choosing their own gender. They believe that little children should choose their own pronoun. They think that uh, biological males should be uh, able to compete in men's sports. Um, they believe in abortion, uh, well, whenever you want it. Um, there's no policy position that the, that the left has right now um, that is moral, that is worthy of support. And uh, we just have to keep putting our foot down. But, um, you know, I want, to, uh, I want to go back to one more thing because uh, my mind is on fire right now. Um, you know, there's a, another reason, folks, that um, when I talked about the Kenny Shue book, uh, which I hope you'll read, um, I mentioned how, you know, in sports you would never ever see this idea of equity take place in which you would uh, uh, attempt to make a, an all-black basketball team reflect and represent the broad spectrum of, you know, identity politics in the country. You wouldn't remove a talented black African-American basketball player from the team in order to, you know, have all the colors of the rainbow represented. But, you know, it's not just because there's money involved in basketball and, and sports in general. Um and that it's, it's competitive by nature. Uh, it doesn't happen in sports because our greatest athletes are often after African Americans. And the point is, um, while it would be absolutely unacceptable to do that on a professional sports team because we believe in a meritocracy, and the truth is those African American athletes earn their spots, they are the best in this country, and they deserve to be there. Well, racism is, uh, is only acceptable these days as long as uh, Asians and whites are the targets. And that's because of the dangerous narrative this uh, Marxist Democrat Party spends about the Constitution being fundamentally racist documents, so on and so forth. That's about critical race theory as well. Uh, it will foment um, hatred and victimhood for the rest of our history and bring about our downfall. But um, I'm going to take one more break here, and when we get back, we'll wrap up this uh, venture into podcasting excellence. I'm sure you've all been dying to hear my take on uh, this... Um, players seem to have um, neither turned towards the flag nor turned towards the World War II veteran who was playing um, the national anthem. Um, it's not surprising, but I'm not going to give you the take everyone else has, has given you. You know, it's fine to be, be outraged. Do you know that um, I think roughly 17 players on that team are the same ones that were on the World Cup team? So... 
There's nothing surprising about this behavior because it's the same people that did it before. But what's interesting is, you know, Colin Kaepernick, I believe it was 2016, when he uh, first refused to stand um, when the national anthem was played, he remained seated. That was in a preseason game, I think, against the Green Bay Packers, it was. And, of course, we know how that went from there. It became a, a big story, and it spread throughout the NFL like wildfire. And, um, well, Megan Rapinoe, of course, the Colin Kaepernick of women's so- professional soccer, she, she was the first one in women's soccer to do the exact same thing. You'll see a photo of her in 2016, uh, seated, taking the knee, when all the other players are standing. Now, she is the only one, I believe, from the photo that takes the knee. But she did what Colin Kaepernick did in the NFL to women's soccer. And my point is, why is it that this was able to go from one outlier, one individual, disrespecting the country, disrespecting the flag, and promoting this false narrative of systemic racism, etc.? How was it that this nation allowed that to continue and grow and spread so that later on, as the years passed by, when he went to 2017, 2018, and so on and so forth, you had more and more players doing the same. See, this is the problem the way I look at it. It became, you know, the, these other, let's look at the women's soccer team. We know that this kneeling came to an end. Many of the players came out and said, look, we didn't expect this to go on forever, almost as if they weren't really committed to it. They were just doing it. Uh, because they felt like they needed to, like there was some pressure to do so. Because had they really been committed, they would have continued to take the knee time and time again. They wouldn't have said, well, there's a, an expiration date on what we're doing here. We just wanted to prove a point, and now we're going to move on. Because that's what happened. They stopped taking the knee eventually. But my point is, how is it that these players whose hearts weren't even in it you know, let's just assume for a second that Megan Rapinoe is really rabid like Colin Kaepernick. Maybe she was inspired because she wanted to get the money that she saw Colin Kaepernick was getting and the attention he was getting for doing what he did. Let's just say she was authentic. But many of the other women on the team were not. So how is it that these, these individuals on the team felt greater pressure to disrespect the flag than to tell one person, Megan Rapinoe, no, we're not going to do this. This is nonsense. This is wrong. Do you see where I'm headed with this? There's something off in the cultural war. Because that's not a popular belief in America, but somehow these women on these teams and in sports are feeling like, and I know what it is, right? It's the media. They get the praise. Um, They see Colin Kaepernick being rewarded uh, with money and becoming almost this Well, like a George Floyd-like figure. Not, obviously, for the same reason, but, you know, they uplift people. The the, the left does, the Marxists do. They uplift people and make them something that they don't deserve and are not representative of. Colin Kaepernick wasn't a hero. He's a punk. Megan Rapinoe's not a hero. She's good at soccer, but she's a punk as well. And um, 
neither of those individuals experienced even, even, even the same kind of uh, racial discrimination that perhaps exists in small segments of society for a few individuals, because of course racism exists, it's always going to exist, and it goes both ways. Whites get it, Asians get it, blacks get it, Mexicans get it, certainly. Um, but these individuals are no different than me doing it. It's not something they experienced, but they're down for the cause. And uh, this is something that we really need to think hard about addressing. Because the problem isn't Megan Rapinoe and Colin Kaepernick. The problem is the majority of the other players who then followed suit. We need to make it clear that the, and the pressure should be stronger to stand up for America than to spit on America. And that's where my concern is. But um, I've got a, uh, a fun story here. So here's the headline. Geo, this is from BizPack Review. GOP hopeful, renowned author, desperately tries to take back tweets slamming Trump. Here's the quotation from this gentleman. I reg regret being wrong. So here we go. Renowned author of Hillbill Elegy, venture capitalist, and new Republican Senate hopeful. There you go. New Republican Senate hopeful. J.D. Vance joined Fox News America Reports on Monday where he walked back newly unearthed tweets critical of then-candidate Donald Trump. CNN reporter Andrew Kaczynski unearthed the tweets from 2016 that have many calling Vance out for hypocrisy. So here's what Vance says in defense. Like a lot of people, I criticized Trump back in 2016, and I asked folks not to judge me based on what I said in 2016, because I've been very open that I did say those critical things, and I regret them, and I re regret being wrong about the guy. I think he was a good president. I think he made a lot of good decisions for people, and I think he took a lot of flack. I think the most important thing is not what you said five years ago, but whether you're willing to stand up and take the heat and take the hits for actually defending the interests of the American people. Now, that in itself I don't have a problem with uh, because I didn't understand Trump back in 2016. He wasn't my guy. Uh, I was leaning Ted Cruz. I was leaning other people. Uh, I was leaning Newt Gingrich. You know, I just wanted somebody uh, who, could, who could get on a stage and hopefully express the ideals of conservatism uh, finally for once in my uh, lifetime. But the problem is Vance's, um, well, his comments about Trump, his criticisms of Trump, sound a lot like the criticisms from the left. That's the problem, okay? It's his ideological slant, and that concerns me. It's one thing to say, I don't know about Trump, like, I'm not into him. Um, but it's another thing to say what, what Vance did, which is, in one tweet, Vance wrote that he found Trump reprehensible because he, quote, makes people I care about afraid, immigrants, Muslims, etc. Now, look, uh, it's one thing to say, uh, grab them by the, you know what, uh, that that's kind of reprehensible. I'm not down for that kind of kind of conversation uh, either. Um, but, and that was a real thing that, that happened, right? It was caught on video. But, but Trump has never, ever been anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim. There's not a racist bone in that guy's body, and there's never been evidence of it. So the fact that this guy 
I mean, Vance sounds like he was getting his news from CNN, and that's my problem with this guy. God wants better of us. And here's the other problem, and this is going to get into my final closing here. God wants better of us. Uh, I'm so tired of hearing people on the right, on the conservative side, who, um, I said this in the last episode. You know, look, Trump was running against Hillary Clinton. That woman is, um, well, prior to the Biden administration, was the most corrupt individual in uh, perhaps American history. Uh, she was truly reprehensible. She was truly amoral. She was truly sick. And to have Trump um, up there on the stage and Hillary Clinton, uh, I, I just don't understand how, how, how you, can, you, you can do it. Uh, because, like I said, the left's candidates are never morally superior to the right. It doesn't excuse certain things in certain cases, but give me a break. Vance announced that he would be voting for Evan McMullen in another deleted tweet. Fellow Christians, he wrote, in response to Access Hollywood tape, everyone is watching us when we apologize for this man. Lord, help us. Here's another one. In four years, I hope people remember that it was those who empathized with Trump's voters who fought him most aggressively. And it was the cosmopolitan conservatives like Moore and Kudlow who shamefully apologized for him. So I want to be clear. This guy's groveling at the feet of Trump, and he doesn't deserve it. I don't support this guy for a single second because he's a rhino. Okay? Let me be clear. He's a rhino. I'm calling it now. If he's elected, he will be a rhino. Um, so that's a no on J.D. Vance, just like I'm a no on um, uh, Mike Pence. But the takeaway here is that um, this guy's groveling for Trump's um, uh, approval. Uh, he wants Trump's endorsement. And that flies in the face of everything that many on the right are saying. Oh, Trump's lost his mojo. Trump doesn't have it anymore. I've heard that from so many people, very people I respect. And here's your evidence that this is wrong. If Trump was so harmful to the Republican Party and needed to go and had no gravitas and no following anymore, and it was damaged goods, why is this guy begging for his endorsement? I'll leave that there on the table. Um, I want to close with this, folks. Remember subprime mor mortgages? You know, those are the mortgages. Uh, when they're called subprime, uh, that means that people who historically have low credit scores and problems with debt are given mortgages. And... Um, so subprimes for those who struggle to meet the, the rigorous standards that one would want as a lender to ensure that you were going to continue to pay the bank uh, for the loan and mortgage to buy a home. Well, of course, this, uh, well, the bottom fell out in 2008, and we know how that went. And we're approaching, I guess, the 10-year anniversary here. Well, no, we're beyond that. But, um, you know, the Great Recession was what happened in 2008. That's because um, these banks were extending loans, subprime mortgages, subprime loans, uh, to people who had low credit. And, of course, l let me put it this way in perspective, if you don't recall. Housing prices back then were rising rapidly, right? And 
the number of subprime mortgages given out was rising even more. And so by 2005, you know, there were many people who were saying, uh, this is a housing bubble. And, and from 2004 to 2006, it's the Federal Reserve, okay? They raised the interest rates over a dozen times. Do you remember that? It was just like, bam, bam, bam. Raising interest rates a dozen times because they were trying to slow, slow this down um, and avoid serious inflation. And I want to stop there because we were trying to avoid serious inflation. We've got serious inflation here right now with lumber prices, with the cost of uh, uh, goods, of uh, restaurants, and, and the price of, of different things, meat and things that they're paying for. We have inflation. And so by the end of 2004, the interest rate was 2.25%. By mid-2006, it was 5.25%. So it nearly doubled. But we haven't done anything to the interest rates in this country. That's the difference. Okay? And so the bubble burst. And the housing market crashed back down to earth. And I want to explain what happened too. So housing prices, they fell tremendously, right? As the housing bubble completely burst, all right? So, the, the, you know, all these recent home, home, homeowners who had uh, been extended these subprime mortgages so they could afford homes, well, they were seeing interest rates, of course, like I just said, doubling, going up consistently on their mortgages. And so they were rising rapidly, and at the same time, the value of the home was deteriorating. So they couldn't pay their mortgages anymore on a monthly payment because the interest rates had gone up, and they didn't account for that. And they couldn't sell the home without taking a massive loss, and they didn't have a choice. So the banks foreclosed on their houses. So the homeowners were left in ruins. Suburbs turned into ghost towns. And, um, I mean, even, even homeowners with good credit who had standard mortgages, the interest rates went up for them, and so they struggled as well. And so the value of these homes cratered, and so banks were taking massive losses on real estate too, and investors were getting hurt. I mean, the whole thing just shook the entire the entire American economy. But we've got a worse situation today. I talked to a gentleman at Bain Capital recently who told me it's coming, brother. It's coming. And um, here I've got an article from CNBC. Real estate investor who shorted subprime mortgages says this housing boom is in a bubble too. Here we go. Another warning. This guy was right last time. Do we trust him this time? I mean, the signs are all around us. The debt's higher now. And actually, you know, well, let me just read through this for you. So a real estate investor who made a fortune shorting subprime mortgages more than a decade ago told CNBC on Friday he believes the current housing market is in a bubble. Absolutely, I think we're in an omni-bubble. How long does it last? It depends. How long do you keep the faucet open and this money running? Billionaire Jeff Green said on Power Lunch, there's just so much money in corporate balance sheets and people's balance sheets and their bank accounts that it's just driven prices of everything higher. But at some point, this has to stop, Green said. The housing market has been one of the strongest parts of the U.S. economy during the coronavirus pandemic, which also put millions of people out of work and sparked a recession. Mortgage rates have been historically low. Okay, this sounds a lot like Pre-2008, circa 2004, 2005, same situation, but worse. Mortgage rates have been historically low, and the rise of remote work has given Americans greater flexibility in where they live. 
So people are moving. They're buying homes. So home prices have been soaring as strong demand clashed with low supply. So when you see prices go up the way they've gone up, you have to ask yourself, why did this happen, Green said, contending the robust monetary and fiscal policy response to the pandemic played a key role. My view is it happened 80% because of the extraordinary amount of liquidity in the economy, 20% because of fundamentals. He pointed, like I just said a few minutes ago, rising costs for lumber, suggesting significant inflation will show up throughout various parts of the economy as it recovers from the crisis. But don't worry, folks, you save 16 cents on a hot dog this July 4th. When the um, economy collapses, just remember that Joe Biden saved you 16 cents on a hot dog. All right? It was all worth it, folks. 16 cents on a hot dog, it's okay. Just remember that fond memory when 2008 on steroids happens again. I'm not trying to scare you folks. I'm just being realistic with you. If something doesn't get addressed here, you know, we've got all these crises in America. We've got the border surge. We've got, you know, this infighting with the parties. We've got S1, the For the People Act, to, to rig the elections forever. I mean, look, everything's going on. But, but what we're not talking about enough is the economy. And Biden's lying through his teeth on July 4th, talking about how, what a great booming economy we have. And that's not true. No one wants to talk about this dirty secret. And I wouldn't be surprised, folks. I'm telling you right now, the Democrat Party is okay with this happening. They're okay with this happening because it gives them another crisis to run on. Because let's move forward three years or so when they're running. Oh, okay, well, it's like being at war. Got to elect a wartime president. Democrats are there. They're going to solve this. They, they would use this like they use everything else. But this guy, who is right again, remember, this guy predicted correctly the Great Recession. And he's warning us again. He says, I think we're going to have inflation that no one is forecasting whatsoever, and it's going to have to lead to much higher interest rates, and that is going to slow down all these markets. Well, of course it is. I mean, these interest rates cannot stay. I mean, they're being suppressed. I mean, the answer back then was to slowly raise them to catch up because they'd been artificially suppressed uh, for so long. But now we're sitting on them longer. The situation is worse. And, and many are saying, too, look, um, now, you know, these sub, the, a lot of these mortgages, they're not calling them so subprime. Uh, I'm trying to remember where it is. They kind of rename them something else prime. But you've also got all the student debt and so on and so forth. And banks have been, uh, been lending these individual student debt uh, funds and so on and so forth. But anyway, I'm just telling you, um, uh, this, this is a significant issue in this country. And uh, unfortunately, we're out of time here. But um, we never get to everything. But, um, you know, we'll continue this very soon. And I just want to thank you for listening. Uh, this is Drew Allen.